makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart and the whole world is a beautiful day and it's good for all of us to be here. Let your voice be heard and respectfully and celebrate life in addition to relativity. This is First Voices. Radio, and I send you greetings and strength from the East Gate of Turtle Island, and uh, where the water and the sun touch the earth at once. And our website is firstvoicesindigenousradio.org. And I want to thank you for your generosity, as always, and for being here. You know who you are. Without you, we cannot continue. I'm your host, Teokas and Ghost Horse, all Native hosted, all Native produced, First Voices Radio, now in its in its 28th year of broadcasting, First Voices Radio producer is Liz Hill. And welcome to the one of 92 FM stations across Turtle Island, which is North America. To some of you that carry First Voices Radio. And thanks to those of you who monitor this program, heartfelt thank you. Wake up and stay awake. Let's count some coup. In the light 1940s, a group of venerable white men selected by President Harry Truman began working in Washington, D.C., to come up with a solution to the so-called Indian problem. And among them were congressmen, cabinet officials, and pundits. And this group was the Hoover Commission, named after its chairman, former President Herbert Hoover. And their job was to figure out how to cut federal spending and streamline the executive branch. They realized those findings in an 80-page report in 1949. In addition to examining welfare, social security, and education, the commission the commission looked 
closely at Native Americans and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And, uh, quote, their standard of living is low, and there is a serious problem in maintaining their health. Educating them properly has proved extremely difficult, reads the report. Uh, Given the apparent inability of the federal government over a period of more than 100 years to that date in 1949 to free itself from responsibilities for their activities, the problems loom large. The solution they proposed was to assimilate Native Americans into white America and eliminate the BIA, and they recommended the government eliminate tribal governments and reservations, too. As our first guest, uh, Max Nesterak is a reporter and producer of Uprooted, the 1950s plan to erase Indian country, which aired in November on Minnesota Public Radio and APM Reports. Max is a reporter for a soon-to-be-announced news outlet in Minnesota, part of the state's newsroom network, and he worked at Minnesota Public Radio and National Public Radio. Uh, welcome to First Voices Radio, Max. It's always an honor to uh, uh, to get someone who has perspective, uh, and in this case, he uprooted the 1950s plan to erase Indian country. Thank you for being here, Max. Thank you for being here, Max. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. Yes, and, uh, you know, what... We st- we read I read this article and I'm like yes this this history is unknown and I thought well who is Max he's he need he needs to be heard because his perspective about the history that from that date 1949 said a lot about what was going on that most people in this country did not hear about in that case American Indians Indians or Native Americans now what was the the impetus to get you going to to talk about this on public radio? So I was a reporter at Minnesota Public Radio in uh, in the Twin Cities, and I was reporting on housing. And uh, in the winter, uh, summer, winter of 2018, um, a homeless encampment appeared uh, next to a, a highway in Minneapolis. And the majority of the people there were Native American. And so as I was reporting on um, the encampment and the response to it, the city response, the county response, the state response, but also tribal governments responding and trying to step up and help people who were living in tents, uh, camped along a highway with winter fast approaching, something I heard over and over again was relocation. And as a non-Native person, that was a word that was um, unfamiliar to me. I didn't know what that history was. Um, and. Uh, but I started talking to more people, learning more, talking to historians, talking to people who experienced it and realized this was a story that uh, needed to be told to a broader audience. And when you first heard the term Indian problem, what did that say to you, Max? You know, it, it, it sounds awful, and it, it is awful um, to think that uh, a culture or a people or a uh, a group would be considered a problem is sounds and is morally reprehensible. And, but it's the way that people talked about it. They, people, white politicians and leaders believe that, um, native people were a problem for not assimilating for, um, and, and yeah, that that seems to be, you know, it, it could spread to many places. Indian problem 
But when it just kind of a side joke, a, a, a tongue-in-cheek thing, is that when I mentioned this to a real Indian from India, they kind of laughed and they, they said, oh, we, we're a problem now. You know, I said, well, that goes back to us as Native people here. So, you know, it, it's even the terminology is misconstrued. When, when I think about the, the family that you followed, you tell the story of Charlotte and Clyde Day. Could you tell us more about how you were able to follow that story? Yeah, so um, a woman I met through my reporting named Doreen Day uh, was the youngest of, uh, works here in the Twin Cities, is a, is a Native midwife, um, and uh, Anishinaabe Kwe, she, uh, and um, a member of the uh, Boys Fort Band of Ojibwe in northern Minnesota, and uh, she's the youngest of 17 children, was born up north near uh, we say up north in Minnesota, um, up north near Virginia, Minnesota, kind of uh, a couple hours south of the Canadian border. And, um, you know, when she was pretty young, um, a BIA officer offered her family a opportunity to move to Cleveland, which they did, and then ended up in, in St. Paul, Minneapolis. And, and I met her as an adult, and she shared with me her family story um, and I also talked to her sisters and some of her, her other siblings. Um, and, and, you know, do you want me to go in, should I go into more of their, their personal story? I think, I think that would help just to bring it home for people. Yeah. So, you know, when Doreen was about three years old, um, a BIA officer, her office, officer offered her family an opportunity uh, at a better life. And so what a better life meant was, uh, educa- good education, a house with running water and electricity, a good paying job, you know, things that any parent wants to provide for their family. And it was different from what they were able to provide for in northern Minnesota. Um, the life she described in her older siblings who were a little bit older is, you know, they hunted and fished, they trapped, they had their needs provided for, but um, her parents looked out and wanted more for their children. They wanted them to have the freedom to choose any future they wanted. And so that was something that the BIA promised. They promised good housing, good jobs. And so they packed up. It was, um, uh, it was eight children and two parents, or six children and two parents, eight of them all together. Um, other, the older children had moved away, and they believed that they were leaving their home forever to move to Cleveland. Um, Doreen comes to me, her mom hadn't been very far, maybe Duluth, uh, not a big city. And so there was this culture shock arriving in Cleveland, which was a big city, uh, lots of hustle and bustle, not being able to see anybody who really looked like them. The BI had said there were a lot of um, families from the Boys Fort uh, band there, and they, had, they saw no other Native people. And her dad really struggled to find work. He had, you know, in addition to being an excellent hunter and trapper, he could also operate heavy machinery, a good paying, and he expected to get a good paying construction job. That didn't pan out. The only job that um, he could find was as a dishwasher. And that uh, does not pay enough to support a family. And so, you know, like a lot of Native people who went on relocation, they found the, what they were promised, it, it didn't pan out. And so he saved up, took him about a month to save up his wages to get his family back to northern Minnesota. 
Um, but of course, like uh, a lot of Native people who went on relocation, um, they turned around and relocated again, tried their chances again, because as bad as things were in the city, the federal government was disin- um, was deinvesting from reservations, was not providing um, services or not investing, trying to create jobs or anything on reservations. So as bad as things were in the city, they were often worse on reservations. And so the Day family picked up and moved to um, St. Paul, where her Doreen's mom got a job as a, a cook and was able to support her herself and her children that way. This this program, the relo- the voluntary relocation relocation program and, and in my experience when I was a child also they they had the head of the family signed this piece of paper saying you know we we are giving consent to move so it really it, it speaks of the, that the BIA called it the voluntary relocation program and that lasted I think 20 years as you said 52 to 72 um, but often people don't know don't hear enough that it was a one-way transportation um, I, I'm wondering, I think you mentioned what was set up for them, what was promised to them. And I use it as a metaphor that signing this piece of paper was like actually signing treaty, signing your home away, signing your familiarity with the land, and then comes the cultural shock. So what I'm interested in is, Max, when you find talk to these natives, these Ojibwe, what their thoughts were on cultural thought shock, what what was in store for them that they didn't know about? Because I think they expected human beings to be human beings, and it didn't turn out that way because of the policies and some of the attitudes by non-Native people. What was your experience with that once you talked to the Day family? Yeah, I mean, of all, I talked to a lot of people beyond the Day family, too, and, and what I heard was um, everybody had an experience of facing um, racial discrimination, facing racism in their day-to-day life, whether it's in school um, and difficulty finding a job and difficulty finding a house. You know, in the 50s and 60s, um, uh, segregation was uh, going on. I talked to one woman whose dad bought a house in the neighborhood, voted that they shouldn't be allowed to move in. Now, that didn't have any legal ramifications, but you can imagine how, uh, how it would feel to have an entire neighborhood and how scary that would be to have an entire neighborhood say, we don't want you to move into our neighborhood. Uh, so um, there was, there was the, the direct racism, but then there was also, um, in your question, you asked about the culture shock. And white, the white bureaucrats who set up this, system believed that families should look a certain way, mother, father, children. And it was, it's different than the way um, many Native people um, see their families and many other non, non-white family groups. Um, and so I read in reading some archival newspaper articles and archival documents, something that came up again and again is that it was a problem that Native people would let their other, their extended family members move into their house. And it was a problem that Native people were too generous, BIA officers said, uh, and newspaper reporters. You know, they said it was one of the BIA officers' tasks was to make sure that um, cousins or uncles or um, aunts didn't move in because no one person could get ahead if they were trying to support everybody else. Well, uh, in some other archival audio, I found a man saying, you know, 
a, a native man, Lakota man, saying, well, of course we're going to support our family. Um, this, is, <laughs> this is what we're going to do. And uh, I think it's, it's a relatable moment for, for any person, but the way it, um, the way it uh, played out in terms of policy is the BIA tried to move families far away from each other or from in different places in the city so that um, to, to break the connection, the family connection, the connection to the tribe, the connection to um, the, the homeland, because if you maintain that connection, then you wouldn't assimilate and you would stay poor. So the thinking went. Yes, we're talking with Max Nesterak, is a reporter in the Proust produced, uh, uprooted the 1950s plan to erase Indian country. Max, also in your report, what I read basically about coming with a cultural shock is that uh, th- there was no room or time, in a sense, um, for ceremonies, for anything mm-hmm. that was cultural to be mm-hmm. shown at that time in the 50s in, in the larger American public. What, what did, did they relate their stories to you as what they could not and could practice? Yeah, so um, as, as you know, and many of your listeners will know, uh, the Indian Religious Freedom Act was passed in 1978, which um, effectively legalized uh, Native religions. Before that, what I heard, and, and this may be um, an experience that you have or, or some of your listeners, is uh, family members having to hide sacred objects um, lest they be confiscated and destroyed. And um, so there was a sense of, there was that direct, um, uh, this goes hand-in-hand hand with boarding schools, which were going on at the same time as the relocation program. Many people went through boarding schools, which were um, more often than not, very traumatic experiences, and then went on relocation to a city all alone. Um, and so you see a bunch of different ways that the government worked to uh, divorce people from their cultural heritage, from their culture, from their religion. Um, one thing that the Day family did is they, they were um, intent on holding on to ceremony, and uh, so they were able to pass it pass it on to their children, and, and the mother, Charlotte Day, helped uh, start a school run by the American Indian Movement in St. Paul called um, Red Schoolhouse. They had a sister school in Minneapolis called Heart of the Earth uh, to, to deal with the fact that so many Native children didn't want to go to school because they were facing bullying from not only their peers, but sometimes teachers, and that was a place that they created a, uh, a place where there was ceremony embedded with it within the school structure and not only was it a healing experience for the kids but uh, many people told me it was healing for the parents as well um and it's really remarkable it was really remarkable for me as a non-native person to realize that this was happening before the indian religious freedom act of 1978 uh, that people were um creating institutions <laughs> against the law in order to preserve uh, their culture and their religion. This is uh, it's sort of a quote from Doreen Day, the person you interviewed for this story, is, uh, that she mentioned her father, Clyde, could sing Indian music all day, meaning Ojibwa music, 
all day and all night for four days probably or more and never sing the same song twice that he and he had never had a drum and Sharon Sharon her sister says I don't know why but he we, he would turn over the coffee can which was an arco coffee at that time and would sing then we would dance and to me that says that even though it was against the law for us to pray to dance to display culture in public that we would indeed do it within our little homes that we were put in just to keep something alive and uh, I re- I remember myself just being very small and hearing nothing but the, the, the language, the indigenous languages within mm-hmm. our home. But I saw a, a marked difference when we went out into the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was this hush, hush, don't speak your language or, mm-hmm. you know, say please. Use all the manners that you possibly could so that basically that we could get a, a, a be able to buy at the local store the, the bread and, you know, that we wouldn't be turned away. And that's how we learned how to survive. Is is there in your interview? Is there any uh, sense of of well being now with with uh, the Doreen and and uh, Charlotte Day and all uh, the whole family there? Is it changed and shifted in any way for the Day family? It has, and and certainly um, they would do a much better job than me in in telling their family story. So uh, I hope anybody who uh, would just take that into account that, you know, it's not my story. I'm, I'm doing the best I can um, to share it. And, um, but Doreen and, and Sharon told me they were young adults, they were young adults in their late teens, or early 20s, um, before they went to their first Medewin ceremony. Um, that's uh, a religion practiced by um, many Ojibwe, Adawa, and Potawatomi people. Um, and Sharon told me she remembered walking in, going into the lodge, going into the ceremony, and and it being instantly familiar because they did things similar to what her dad had done. And, and she told me, you know, her dad would not have considered, may not have called himself Madewin. That's not a word that they may have used because religion was um, banned. And so, but he was able to pass it on. So now that it's... Um, uh, out in the public, not out in the public, but legal and people are, are finding it again and, and breathing life back into that fire. Um, you know, she's, it's been able to grow and um, be more a part of their lives now. And so Doreen is, I believe, a fourth-degree uh, fourth Medewin, and Sharon is a second-degree Medewin, which, um, again, I'm not an expert on that either, but it means that they have um, are living in an accordance with their Anishinaabe principles and have done a lot of um, a lot of work. I equate it to maybe having a master's or a PhD in theology. I, I agree with that, and thank you. It, it's really, I'm glad that you're able to give your perspective, because non-Native perspective about, you know, finding out about their own history, about their own government, and how Native people were treated within this society, you know, and even going back as far as the eugenics, that is mm-hmm. the back of the minds of a lot of people, that we can improve the Native population, and mm-hmm. if only they would, you know, adhere, get with the program, you know, and it's, it's almost like making us into some kind of breed uh, that would, would be desired to, you know, show the characteristics what of what it means to be a good American, so 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 to speak. And now we, we are in, in the part where we think about 
how much that how much uh, we as Native people have actually volunteered and actually, uh, you know, done basically for this country to understand mm-hmm. which, what freedom, being free, is all about. Would you give us your thoughts on that? Because we have a few minutes left, and I really want to get to this part. Yeah, so I think one of, like you touched on, a really, really important thing to recognize is that Native people as many of your listeners know, and you'll know, serve in the military at among the highest rates of any group, any ethnic group. And um, and how is that loyalty repaid? And there was, I think, a misinterpretation. Um, if you're reading it and if you're um, being sympathetic to the white bureaucrats who are creating this system, then they believe that um, Native people showed their patriotism and then that meant that they didn't want to be Native anymore, that because they served in World War II, that because they served um, in the Korean War at such high rates, that meant that they wanted to be Americans and didn't want to be Native Americans, not, not realizing that the two could exist simultaneously. Um, and I think even to this day, um, Native people continue to serve in the military at high rates. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's the point that you were getting at, correct? Yes, and and I I think yeah. you know just just to understand that this article that you wrote is is a great read. It's a good read. We have to take time to understand the historical context of it because obviously before 1949 there was other other policies in place. And I think this Max uh, opens up the door to that prehistory of 1490 mm-hmm. and even to 1492. How a certain peoples of North and South America behaved and treated the land and it's so so much more deeper but i'm glad that you were able to do this this article um write this article and talk about the little history and your experience from your education you know uh, understanding the broken promises uh what is uh really the rights of a lot of native people to basically be themselves and i think uh, um and this is my opinion, Max, is that I think people are turning towards that knowledge and understanding of the land, of of basic, simple, more deepening practices with how to live with the earth, how to live with the land, and especially how to being, live amongst each other, which didn't seem to um, pan out, uh, uh, sort of a gold strike thought process, but uh, to to meet out, you know, the understanding by being racism or stuck in races all the time. And because that formula seemed to work mm-hmm. for, for racism itself. And now mm-hmm. we understand the human being side of it. And that's what I was touched by when you, when I read, mm-hmm. read your article, I'd like to thank you for that. Is there anything that I might have missed that I forgot to ask? No, I just, I really appreciate you having me on and, and reading the story. And um, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you got something out of it. <laughs> I'm glad that was, you know, but yeah. Yeah, um, and thank you so much, Max Nestor. I keep writing and keep finding, helping people find out and bring that perspective from the non-native side of it where you know, someday we're, we're all just going to understand that there there's a big chunk of history missing, um, especially mm-hmm. if we were here as native people before 1492. You know, and, and it, it, history didn't start in 1492. For some it did, but not for all. So I thank you again, again for your words, and uh, thank you for being here, Max Nesterek. Yep, thank you so much. Yes, and this is Teokas and Ghost Horse, and that was Max, Max Nesterek, who is reporter and producer of Uprooted, the 1950s plan to erase Indian country, which aired in, in November in Minnesota Public Radio and APM Reports. And, 
He will also have a soon-to-be-announced news outlet in Minnesota, part of the state's Newsman Network. And uh, again, that was Max Nestract. Again, this is Teokasen Ghost Tours, and uh, thank you for joining us here.
All right, that is Le Lea. It's a, a long musical break with uh, a country that has beautiful culture, just like native culture in this country, uh, this land, North America, South America, Turtle Island, and beyond. And since that time, the beginning of time, music has always been a way of communicating these observations and uh, experiences about the world. And for indigenous peoples, native peoples who have lived within their traditional territories for generations, music is a repository of ecological knowledge with songs embedded, ancestors' knowledge, teaching, and wisdom. And I wanted to bring our next guest on to talk a little bit about the indigenous songkeepers that are revealing traditional ecological knowledge in music. And uh, I would like to bring our guest, our guest uh, Kim, I'm going <laughs> to say it really slow, Ogui Logwa is a daughter of the late clan chief, and uh, and I can't say his name, Iwan Nuzi, and sister to the current hereditary chief, uh, oh boy, I wish I could say these names, Tla Guagila of Qualicum First Nation. Through her family, she received vast knowledge and experience in the political organization during the formative years of the Southern Vancouver Island Tribal Federation, the Raven Society, the Union of BC or British Columbia Indian Chiefs, and the Native Brotherhood of BC. And for three decades, she has received highly focused training from Ninogad, which are cultural spirit specialists, and Cleve Chan, Adam Dick, which is Kwaksistala, and Dr. Daisy Seawid, and of her nation, who have carried ancestral teachings associated with maintaining balance within both the natural and supernatural worlds. And during that time, Ogui Logwa has also served at dozens of local, provincial, and national indigenous NGOs. And advisory committees and societies offering a unique cultural, academic, and political perspective to each organization. So, what uh, Ogwe Logwa or Kim is, uh, we're talking to you about recording and uh, how these song and the song keepers, as you have indicated, uh, and me reading a little bit about this this article here, is that the the time, the beginning time, we've carried this knowledge of how to treat our land, how to treat each other, how to treat, you know, nature, mother nurturing, mother nurture as it is, and uh, that we have carried this forward. And I'd like to thank you and ask you to come on and honor us with your words and th thoughts. Welcome, Kim. And, and thank you so for bravely trying to, uh, and doing so well, <laughs> speaking the Kwakwak names of our ancestors. They are pleased. And I thank you for that. It, uh, um, yes. You know, our people in North America have been under siege for a few centuries. On the west coast of British Columbia, it's only been a century and a half since since a lot of the colonization began. But sadly for our, our brothers and sisters across uh, this this nations, the nations that, that uh, others occupy have uh, sadly been under siege and... One of the things that we have found is we have a minimal amount of knowledge keepers uh, left alive, and one of our most important ones passed away just a year ago. And because he was secluded, when all of our children were being taken from residential school from the shores of 
villages at the turn of the century and well into the 1950s, we lost a repository of knowledge that was, we didn't lose it, it went sleeping. He himself started, Quaxi Stella started to work, even though he didn't read or write or go to school. He started to work with academics to remember things around our natural environment that were so crucial in, in the knowledge that we know today. And he framed every, every bit of research and every expedition with a song. And we just noticed this in passing. We didn't really pay attention to it 30 years ago until we started to just say, wait a minute, wait a minute, why are you singing these songs? He said these were the songs to teach the children how to take care of the land, how to do this work. Because without having the intergenerations to do this heavy lifting, we, we can't have one piece missing. He said the children must help the grandparents. The parents must do the heavy work, but the children must carry this to another generation. And so many of these songs we found inspired the kids, taught them how to do the work in the, the Lokiwe, the clam gardens, in the tequiloks, the root gardens, looking at every interconnectedness. But more than anything, it taught them that everything was alive. Everything was alive. But embedded in the songs were really strong um, conservation. There's a cute song that translated uh, for crabapple picking that is a paddle song, so you're paddling up a river to come to the ancient crabapple groves, and you're singing and calling to the grizzly bear to please leave us be. And we will be very kind if you give us safe passage and we'll leave crab apples for you to eat. We will share. We won't take it all. So it taught conservation. It taught times of the year, taboos about when and where to gather things. Certain times of year you can't. So we start to go back 30 years ago and look at the songs. We being myself and a few Aboriginal academics and and a very well-known ethnobotanist, uh, Nancy Turner, and, and Doug Dewar, with Nez Perce from Oregon. And these things started to just come alive. And we had lost it ourselves, even though our contact had been much less than other parts of the world, because of the children being removed. That was the link. The songs were for children to remember for the next generation. Hogwi Logwa, when when I hear you speak of the the lost song, but yet they're they're not lost. It's just that you said they went to sleep. This seems to resonate in a worldwide context um, because it's the earth is always awake, and maybe it's us that have gone to sleep. I agree with you, and I think more than ever now we must uh, quietly start remembering that each of these songs isn't just a little ditty or a song that is. Uh, fun or sounds great or a way to showcase your voice, but it has ancestral energy. And every time we sing those songs, Quaxi Stella reminded us that we were calling upon the ancestors to put our hands in there so that we may be able to do what it was right for for our Mother Earth. We, there were so many things we couldn't do in the winter months. He said, you must let the earth rest. 
didn't like a lot of construction and things being done in the winter months. So that the, he said, once the snow falls, that's the earth's blanket. That's our signal to let it rest. It gets tired if we don't give it a rest. And there's a lot of little things embedded in songs like that to allow us to. It's our responsibility to keep it living. We don't turn our power over even to, even to our almighty creator. We're giving those tools, and that's our job, to watch it and to sustain it. And I, I heard him say often, we looked after these things for thousands of years since the beginning of time, and it only took a hundred years for the mamasa, the visitors, to make a mess of it. Ogle, you, Ogle, Kim, I'm going to say that for now. Yes. You know, when when you you speak of the songs in in the manner that they're they're alive and they're they're very respectful, I almost want to, you know, I understand it as a different, I would say, dimension, but uh-huh. I, but I also understand it that the, the knowledge is also encoded, and yes. some sometimes in in our languages that it would be almost impossible to translate correctly everything that is kept in those languages or those codes of the earth. In that traditional music that you are rediscovering or that actually the songs are been waiting there and they're rediscovering you, they're letting you know that we've been here, we're just waiting for you. This this model to respect the way for humans and other beings of earth, uh, the non-humans, what interacts with you as a, a a native from your part because your mute your 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 language speaks of the waves and the forests and you know the animals there and it's it fits that land and it just makes sense that that music and then your 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 language it fits that land it makes sense because i've been into your part of the country there and it just fits it speaking lakota made sense to me but hearing your language there on the land made total sense. So uh, yeah. I think you know where I'm going with this. Absolutely. Um, in, in 1994, uh, Quasi Stella allowed his creation story to be shown to open the Commonwealth Games in Victoria. And in that is a section that speaks of how a brother was transformed into Eagle Down and spread all over the world. And he said to each... And every culture, I think 500 million people watched it. Now, you are all, we are all one. We all come from the same. We just have different languages and ceremonies to do the same kind of beautiful honoring of the gifts we've been given. It's our job not to waste it. It's our job to keep it alive. And we received after that messages from indigenous people from all over the world saying, yes, we agree, we believe in the same thing. And I agree with you, the languages of, of our place and our birthplace are yearning, just yearning for these songs to be sung on the land again by children. They're just yearning. And the other sacred songs as well. But they can't be sung out of context. You know, some of the deeper sacred songs have too much energy just to be to be sung every day. And so for us to understand that. But it's just as important for us to honor and respect the songs and the of the of other lands. And we traveled a little through 
about our beautiful area and honored and respected the language and the traditions and the teachings of everyone else. And it's extremely important to... One of our worst laws to be broken was to have long arms, literally. It was a massacre offense if you stole something sacred. And that could include a song from another people because that was so, so much part of their core and human as a human being that you had to be careful. Always, and he always would open a palace and say, or a feast or a ceremony and say, be careful. Be careful to always know your lineage and who you are and where you come from for using or speaking of those things that do not belong to you is dangerous. Um, and you're absolutely right to know that in your own territory you know the resonance of these ceremonies and language and songs. It doesn't mean that we hoard and keep them to ourselves, but it means that we're very cautious about the way we celebrate it. And it's why we worked with children's songs, because those are things that are keep the landscape and the environment alive and the connection to the ancestors, but... It's also not clan-owned. It's not owned by individuals. It's owned by the nation. And so for us to, when we reawaken and allow those teachings to come back to us in a profound way, we must always pay attention to the energy and the strengths and the rules and the obligations that are attached to each of them. And, and the settlers of this land have done haven't done any of that. And it's why we're in the kind of terrible place we're in today. We're speaking with Ogwe Logwa Wikalma Klutesi of the Qualicum, uh, who is a cultural, cross-cultural teacher, interpreter, researcher, and writers on different topics such as ethnobotany and tribal history. You were speaking about, you know, maybe the elders and mentors that are still here and maybe you being one yourself and teaching your children, but also is is the, the true, the purity kept within the songs so that nothing really changes, but yet it's changing all the time? Because when, when I think about ceremonial songs, it speaks of the motion of the change rather than things being stagnant in one place. We can say, well, we sang this song <coughs> for 15,000 years and nothing has ever changed. But... <laughs> But be, because of knowing nature as changing yet yep. moving in motion, that we always speak about the the updated version, so so to speak, is in something that was sung fifteen thousand years ago. How powerful and profound is that? That you can evoke energy from a song that an ancestor created fifteen thousand years ago. But you know the most the most traditional knowledge holder that I ever knew was Quaxistella because he was uh, born to a prophetic dream and secluded and trained like no other had been in his lifetime. And yet he was so modern. He used every tool and gadget, even though he didn't read or write, never went to school in his life. He has over 100 academic papers he's co-written <laughs> and uh, because his knowledge, he, w he made it very clear that his knowledge could not be used by people. It, he had to be attached to it. So a way of accommodating that was 
was that the technology and the way that we transmit it, he taught us, had very little bearing. Using modern tools to create things that the ancestors had given us had very little bearing. He said it was the prayers, the energy, and being clean and balanced as you're doing the work that's vitally important, even in the midst of craziness. So when we were carving a totem pole for the Commonwealth Thames out of styrofoam, he still treated them as if they were a cedar pole. They still behaved as if they were a pole with their eyes waking up. And he said it doesn't matter. These things are alive. It's the notion of it that are alive. So when you do your prayers and connect, even if you're using some motor or something to do the work rather than a a handmade tool, it's still the same thing. So he taught us how to modernize, but also to stay traditional. And I think that's a real key because many of us are in such a quandary about trying to keep um, pure. And we also have some strange uh, settlers who think that we're not traditional if we don't dress as we did 200 years ago. But we aren't a stagnant culture across North America. We are not. And this is just like he would often say, Quark Vistella would often say to us, this time we're going through right now with the talking fingers. It's like the great flood of years and years ago. We will survive that, but we will come out a little different. But as long as we remember our values and teachings, and we respect the energies, and we respect those amazing gifts that the Creator gave us, honor our ancestors, we will be fine. But we lose our way sometimes by having too many conversations about the technology rather than the energy and the teachings. Ogilogwa, you're, you're so correct when, when uh, you know, I live in the eastern part of the United States and the East Coast, mm-hmm. so to speak, and there's a lot of that colonial mentality going on and that we're expected to, you know, behave and talk a certain way. And yeah, but, you know, the other thing that I also understand is whenever I'm feeling that sort of lost in a desert feeling uh, that I've had too much of certain types of energy, talking all the time, people asking questions, almost extracting, wanting everything from the native as they do the land, is that I go back to the, the songs go back to the language and I say that I'm from it. I'm from the language. I'm from, you know, the Lakota. And, but that I can never speak for the Lakota because that needs to be given permission. What is your view on that? I believe precisely what you're saying. I, I, we were brought up in a similar manner. I think we were all brought up in a similar manner. These are not ours. We inherit obligations when we inherit knowledge. And if you take the knowledge on, I often would hear teachers say, you can't take it off like clothes. You have to wear it all the time. Mm. And you don't have to dress as we did long, long ago, but we must behave in a way where our eyes are wide open and in a way where we always are balanced and clean. And sometimes it's enough just to light a candle and say a prayer. We don't have to have a big ceremonial house. 
and for those who are struggling to figure out how to be traditional in this crazy world we live in, that's enough to say a prayer and say, I am Kwakwakwak, I am of the land, but I don't own it. I own the obligations to treat it well and to treat all all those who've come before me and after me to treat them well. And that includes all of our relatives in the plant world, in the undersea kingdoms, the creatures that fly the closest to the heavens, and all of those poor creatures that are suffering as a result of us moving them out of their, their own resting places. Pay attention to that and just listen. We don't have to be fanatical. We just have to continue to ground ourselves in song and whatever kind of ceremony it takes to evoke our own balance and our own remembering of ancestral ancestral teachings. I, I hear um, lots of appreciation for just understanding the complexity of of your songs, of your your mentors, even of your uncle's story, um, mm. you know. And I think about, in you know, in 1978, they supposedly gave us the Religious Freedom uh, Act that we can actually speak our language, sing our songs, and dress as we want. And yeah. But yet, there were so many that went underground. And in mm. my previous interview, in this first half hour here, I was talking about someone who could sing their songs for three days and never sing the same song twice. Yes. And that was my late partner, Quaxi Stella. He knew thousands of songs. Thousands. And he would sit quietly before we'd prepare for a ceremony and say, and I would try to talk about mundane things, about what would you like to eat for supper. And he'd look at me in that voice and with the eyes of nobility and say, Oguilokwa, I'm working you know that. And that was my cue to move myself out of the secular world and and just take care of him while he was in the altered world. Quietly move through that. It's true. We've lost many of these things um, only for this moment in generation because we can't hear it because of the static. I believe that this outside world creates static like on a radio. And if we try to slow ourselves down a little bit, we will hear it again. And you're very correct. They're not lost. But some people, like my grandmother, would lock lock a door before she spoke the language or sang anything in her language because she witnessed her brother passing away in a residential school from a beating for singing a song. And we have several generations on the coast here where there, it was very brutal to try to shut that down. So laws change, but your fears don't. And your feelings about what happened to you and your trauma doesn't. So it'll take time, and it'll take a place of safety for people to reach back into that place and not just use the songs as a marketing ploy to try to, you know, sell more artwork or or to market themselves as a, you know, cross-cultural trainer or something like that. It's far deeper than that because it's dangerous, as Quaxi Stella would say and my other teachers. 
one of his favorite phrases was, uh, thank you so much for honoring me, because when you honor me, you honor my teachers, my ancestors, because it is not I who received this today, but they're very, very long and hard-thinking received this honor today. Ogwilogwa Kim Rikalma Glutesi, I'd like to thank you with that honor. I'd welcome you back someday because I think people want to hear this word. We are yearning for it because this is the, the law of the land, the land, air, and water language of this, these lands here in the Western Hemisphere. So I would uh, thank you for being here and bringing us that story about the uh, indigenous songkeepers reveal traditional ecological knowledge in our music, our language, our ways of living. But thank you. Um, Kim, for being here today. Gaila Kessler, from the bottom of my heart, I really thank you for that, because for that you you honor those who have left us in such a profound way. Thank you for that. Thank you for what you do. Thank you. And uh, this is First Voices Radio, and that is Kim. And uh, her name, again, is, is very quite profound in itself. And I'd say that because it's uh, not only difficult, but it's easy to respond to once you are able to say her name, Kim Rikoma Klutetesi Ogwilogwa, which is a, who is a teacher from her people in Qualicum First Nation in Canada. So those of you who um, are trying to figure out what we as Native people are doing here, we're doing a lot, and uh, I'm going to just sign off here and welcome the next, the next uh, program to... First Voices Radio and this radio station that you listen to. I do this so that you may live.